Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I am one of the pastors and elders here, and uh, I'd like you to keep your Bibles open to John 13. Before we release the children, quick announcement. We have uh, our VBS coming up. VBS, if you're not a church person, is, is a secretive way of describing a summer program for, for children. So it's Vacation Bible School is what it stands for. Uh, we call it Kids Quest. And so this is a way for us to, to disciple our children to teach them over a course of a week uh, certain truths about God and Christ and draw them closer to Him. It's also a way for us to invite other kids from the neighborhood to be introduced to Christ, to discover the gospel. And so I encourage you to sign up if you have kids, and if you would like to volunteer, we're still looking for a few volunteers, so please sign up if you're an adult would like to help. And also use this invite to share this information with others in your neighborhood we find that a personal invitation is always best. So if you have neighbors that you know and their kids are this age, talk to them about this, invite them to it. All right, so children between 2 and 8 years old are released for Children's Church. If you are visiting and you're new here today, you may take your children to the foyer where everybody's going. There will be somebody there to direct you the way you need to go. <clears throat> well, we are starting a new series of sermons called Together. This is about community, about what it means to live in a healthy Christian community. What is the church supposed to be like? That's the central question. We're going to be looking at five different New Testament passages over the next five weeks to help us understand what a healthy community is. But in the background of all of this, at least for me, is the Old Testament passage, Psalm 133, that was read as our call to worship that describes community in very tangible terms. It's like oil that drips down on the hair and beard and clothes of Aaron, the high priest. It's like the dew of Hermon. Just very poetic way of describing the joy of community, describing the freshness and the, the healthy influence of community. It is for that purpose that I've been growing a beard, uh, just to, to experience that biblical text in uh, Sometime during these weeks, we'll be pouring oil and see how it actually feels, <laughs> if it's as good as it, the psalm claims. Next week, uh, you'll have a special treat of having my best friend, Pastor Q Mahmoud from Chicago, preach to you, outside of marriage, my male best friend. And uh, it is a treat. Let me t- I've heard him preach many times, and it, it's a treat, so... That's next week, and then uh, Josh Govier, one of our pastors, will preach another in this sermon series, and I'll take the other two. It will culminate in the last sermon on August 14th, which is our day of fasting and prayer, and that, will, that sermon will reset the vision for the fall and winter ministry. So this is a good time for us to talk about community. It's kind of a slower-paced summer. We get to reflect and think about our relationships and talk about our church and how we treat each other. So today we start with a foundational command to love one another. Let me set our passage in context. Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples. This is the last meal they're having together. Jesus knows that within hours he's going to be betrayed and arrested. He knows all that is leading to the cross. He is not surprised at that, though he is wrestling with it emotionally. He knows that the the young church, this new Christian community, the disciples are going to be tested 
as he leaves them, as they try to figure out what is happening and what their mission is now that Jesus is gone. And, and all of that makes him, I think, try to prepare this new community uh, by teaching them and encouraging them. So he starts by talking about love. He starts by talking about the foundational principle of loving each other as something that can sustain that community in the midst of trials. D.A. Carson said, I guess both John, Shannon, and I have been reading D.A. Carson. Carson says, The new command, this command to love one another, is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate and profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So today we'll try to understand some of the profundity of this commandment. We'll consider three aspects of this very simply stated command according to Jesus. One aspect is that it is modeled after the love between Jesus and the Father. It's rooted in the Trinitarian love. The second aspect is that it is motivated by the sacrificial love of Jesus for his people. And finally, thirdly, this command and the exercise of that kind of love marks us as his disciples in the eyes of the others. So the image I have in my mind that might be helpful to us is community as a tree. If you imagine community as a tree, it would have roots reaching deep into the Trinity. Its trunk would be shaped like the cross of Christ, and its branches would spread out into mission. So rooted in the Trinity, shaped like the cross, and the branches reaching out far to share its fruit with others. So now you have something to draw if you're a doodler and you have something to do as you listen to me talk and hopefully we can discover how each aspect applies to our particular church and what God wants us to do. So let's examine each one of the three aspects. Number one, Christian community is modeled after the Trinity. It has Trinitarian roots. Jesus says, this is how he starts this command. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So Jesus sets this command to love one another in the context of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Our love as Christians must reflect their love. We are to love as they love each other. Now, what's implicit here is made explicit in John 17, a little bit further in the same conversation that Jesus is having. And then he moves into prayer for his disciples. So John 17, verse 20, Jesus says in prayer, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage. But one thing that's clear is that Jesus is saying the way the Trinity operates, the way the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the way they are united with each other, the way they share glory with each other, and now that glory is shared with us, that is the template now for our community, for the church. We are to operate as the Trinity operates. We are to live and love and be united and treat each other the way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate and love each other. Now, when I say Trinity, let me explain what I mean, okay? So in two minutes, I'll explain the Trinity. We'll we'll see how I do. There are three truths that are evident in Scripture. Number one, there is only one God. Number one truth, only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The second truth is that there are three divine persons. There's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. So truth number one, God is one. Truth number two, there are three divine persons. And truth number three is that the three persons are most intimately connected with each other. For example, Jesus, when he gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, says... Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So those are the three clear truths in Scripture. We take all of that together and we come up with the doctrine of the Trinity that basically says that God is one essence or one nature, but He eternally exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one nature, but He eternally exists in three persons. These three persons have one divinity, equal glory, co-eternal majesty, and yet they are together and distinct. Ultimately, friends, there is no perfect analogy to the Trinity. We have not, we as the Christian church, as Christian teachers, have not been able to come up with anything that really helps us explain that well. So why do we believe this? We believe this because the scriptures make it clear. It's a mysterious teaching, but it is the only way to correlate these various truths from scripture. This is who God is. He has revealed himself as one essence in three persons. Listen to one theologian describe it. There is in God genuine diversity as well as true unity. The Christian God is not just a unit, but a union. Not just unity, but community. He is tri-unity. Three equal persons, each one dwelling in the other two by virtue of an unceasing movement of mutual love there is distinction but never separation father son and spirit have only one will not three only one energy not three none of the three ever acts separately apart from the other two they are not three gods but one god 
Yet although the three persons never act apart from each other, there is in God genuine diversity as well as specific unity. Okay, and some of you right at this point are saying this is too abstract. This just seems like something that we have come up with to explain Scripture, but it doesn't seem to have a lot of bearing on my life. It's just an abstract idea of something that maybe theologians like to talk about, maybe pastors like to talk about with other pastors, but it has no influence on the life of a normal, regular Christian. Well, Jesus connects the Trinity to our life in an intensely practical way. In our text, there's a connection. Jesus is saying, God is glorifying me, I'm glorifying God, and now you love each other. He's saying, I am one with the Father, now you be one as we are one. We have this glory that we've shared, now we've shared it with you, now you live with each other in this way. You see, Jesus does not think this is an abstract idea for theologians only. He thinks this has practical influence on our lives. We are to have the same unity, the same love, the same kinds of relationships as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have among themselves in the Trinity. Without the Trinity, we cannot live the Christian life. And more specifically, we cannot have a healthy Christian community unless we root it in the Trinity. Verses 31 and 32 in our text. We're going to stay close to our text. Jesus glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies Jesus. The Son is glorified in the Father, and the Father is glorified in the Son. You see the connection, the unity, the the interaction between the two divine persons. Now, what does it mean to glorify someone? That's easy to say, right? Jesus is glorified, or we want to glorify God. What does that mean? To glorify someone means to reveal someone's glory so others could see it. It means to put a spotlight on someone's beauty. It means to draw attention to someone's essence, someone's nature, someone's character. The divine persons within the Trinity are preoccupied. From eternity, God has existed in this unceasing movement of glorifying one another, always exalting one another, always rejoicing in each other. Each person is focused on another each fascinated with another, each loving another. Now, this is the model for our community. Genuine diversity and genuine unity ensured by our ongoing efforts to glorify each other. As the Father points to the Son and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember those couple passages in Scripture. Father looks at the Son and rejoices that this is his son. And he points to him, draw attention to him. He, he is fascinated with his beauty, his character, his obedience, his humility, his glory. So we also, in our Christian community, look at each other and say, Behold, this is my brother. Behold, this is my sister. And we rejoice in the diversity of each other. We draw attention to each other and we're saying, look how different this person is from me and yet the image of God is reflected in this person. Look at how this brother's experience is so different from mine. I don't have the same 
experience as he has. I didn't grow up the same way. I did not have the same type of suffering as he has. But look at how grace now is magnified in this life. We look at and say, behold this sister. And this sister is reflecting God's image in a way that I am not able to reflect. And yet I am rejoicing in her. I'm rejoicing and I'm drawing attention. I'm putting a spotlight on this person. I'm glorifying them. I want other people to see. I want God to see what is going on in this person's life. As the Spirit glorifies Jesus, there's there's great humility to the Spirit's work. The Spirit has decided to only draw attention to Jesus, to glorify Him, to remind us of what Jesus has told us. As the Spirit does that, glorifying Jesus we too refrain from pushing our own view, our own agenda, our own preferences. As the Spirit glorifies Jesus, we glorify each other. As Jesus comes to fulfill His Father's will, remember, He's saying, I'm not coming on my own authority. I'm doing what the Father told me to do. I'm telling you what, the, what I heard the Father say. As He does that, we also humbly submit ourselves to others in the Christian church, in the Christian community. It's the preoccupation with another's well-being and another's growth that makes a church healthy. Imagine, imagine this rarest of communities where each person is looking out for another person. Where we are looking at each other and we're saying, I want to highlight that. I want other people to see what God is doing in this life. I want to show off the beauty of this person. I want to make sure that this person's gifts are used to to her full potential. What if we thought this way? What if we acted this way? What if we looked at each other in that way? Because that is what's happening in the Trinity. Each divine person is looking at another divine person within the Trinity and is glorifying Him. Are you into uh, puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, anybody? I have no patience for it, just let me tell you. Also, frequently, not all the pieces are in the box. I don't want to take that risk. (laughs) I don't want to invest hours and hours of time and then realize we're missing a piece. But I understand the principle, so I'll just share the principle. The principle is you have a picture you can look at, and then you have all these pieces. And you're putting the pieces together in such a way as to perfectly reflect the picture that's on the box, right? Easy principle. This is exactly how it works in the church. There's all these pieces. We're all different shapes. We're all different from different experiences, different backgrounds, different gifts, different personalities, different genders, different races. All of that is different, different ages. And God is throwing all of us together in this box, right? And He says, put it together. But how? Not just randomly. So it reflects the picture on the box. What is the picture on the box? That's the Trinity. That's the Trinity. So we love each other the way the Father and the Son and the Spirit love each other. We are united as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are united to each other. That's our template. That's the picture. That's the vision. And so as we process these things, we see that picture And we try to conform to that picture in our relationships, in our programs, in the life of the church. Now let me go further. This is a 
a positive take on this. Let me go further a little bit and push us a little bit on this. If a church does not practice this unity in diversity type of life, it implicitly rejects the doctrine of the Trinity in its practice. It may still have it on paper. Most churches have Trinity well-defined in their statements of faith, in their creeds. But if we are not practicing this unity in diversity relationally, we are rejecting this doctrine in practice. When a Christian remains on the fringes of their church community, now you come, you attend, but you're not involved, nobody knows you, you don't know anybody, you're not joining in what the church is doing, you're not open with others. If you're on the fringes of a church community, you do not practice the Trinity. And thus you do not reveal the true nature of who God is. When a Christian only engages with others, as long as they do what is agreeable to them, what goes along with their goals and their desires, that is a practical denial of the teaching on the Trinity. Division in the church is practical heresy. It's not doctrinal heresy, but it is practical heresy because we are acting inconsistently with our doctrine. Racism and prejudice in the church is a slap in God's face. We're implicitly saying, whether consciously or not, but what we're saying to God is, we're not going to be like you. We're going to be like we want to be. So if we don't address these kind of issues, we are being inconsistent with what we believe. Exclusion and neglect of others are totally inconsistent with who we confess our God is. God is diversity and unity. And if God is a unity, we must take the unity of the church very seriously. If God is a community, diversity within himself, we too must live in community with each other. If God has diversity within himself, we dare not keep our community homogenous, meaning only comprised of one type of people. Now, you can go lots of different directions in trying to keep your church homogenous. You can say, we're just going to attract this, this generation to our church. Well, that is a practical rejection of the, of the Trinity. Because you're saying, we're only going to be this way. Or we're only going to attract this race to our church. Again, practically we are denying the Trinity as we do that. We can focus on one generation, one race, one social group. And as we do that, we become anti Trinitarian. Now, I understand there's a lot to think about. Once you start making that connection between the Trinity and the church community, there's a lot of stuff to think through, a lot of stuff to apply. So let me give you this one broad application question. This will help us as a church think through these issues during the week. The question is, how does your interaction with others in this church reflect the Trinitarian nature of God. How does your interaction with others in this church reflect the Trinitarian nature of God? Are your relationships fundamentally Trinitarian? Are you being consistent with who God is in your own community?
Now the second aspect that we're looking at, that's we talked about the roots, the Trinitarian roots that take us deep. Now let's talk about the motivation by Christ's sacrifice. This is the cross-shaped trunk of our tree. Our love for each other is motivated by what Jesus did for us. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus says we are to love each other as Christ loves us. How does he love us? He loves us graciously and sacrificially. Grace and sacrifice define how we love each other and motivate us to love each other well. Now grace, as many of you know, is at the core of our faith. Grace is what separates Christianity from all other worldviews. And I do mean all other worldviews. It really is that distinctive. God did not send Jesus to help the righteous, but to save sinners. It is quite an amazing thing. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. Now, let me say this again. While we were still sinners... God demonstrated His love for us and desired for us. We need to stop understanding what Paul here. That we're sinners, Jesus died for God's enemies. While we're separated from Him, we're still dying for His law. While we're going meat sources and at the same time keeping God at a distance. While that was all happening, Jesus came and loved us unto death. Jesus comes to us before we come to Him. This is a fundamental truth of the gospel, that Jesus comes to us before we come to Him. It is not that we need to pull it together, make ourselves presentable, fix our problems, make amends, and then we can ask for His help to make it easier for us to to reform ourselves. We just need a little bit of divine power to do better in our own project of reformation. It's not like that at all. Jesus finds us when we are still oblivious to the depth of our problems. When in no way are we acceptable to Him. Jesus is chasing us as we are running away from Him so He could love us. That's the picture. That's grace. You see? He's not standing there and saying, okay, now, if you got yourself together, you figured it out, you realize what your problem is, then you come to me and I will help you. He's going after us. He's pursuing us. He's finding us. He's saving us. And only then do we understand, and by the way, progressively as you grow as a Christian, how big the problem was to begin with. You don't get it right away. Nobody does. Jesus finds us. He saves us. That's what we call grace. Our relationship with God does not rest in our resolutions or achievements. It rests very clearly in Christ's eternal resolve to love us 
and his cosmic achievements on the cross and in the empty tomb. None of that depends on us. All of that depends on him. All of that is done and accomplished and finished and is now credited to us. That's the gospel. That's grace. This is how Jesus loves us. Savior loving sinners. Now that brings us to his sacrifice, another aspect of his love. It's not just abstract that expressed it. Jesus takes my That's why did Jesus have died? Jesus' death was the best way for him to love us. It was the best way for him to love us. Remember how the Trinity operates, always glorifying another, always seeking the well-being, the welfare, the joy of each other, always seeking to give an opportunity for us to fly. This is what Jesus is doing. He's led us in his penalty of death. And he said, how to read them from it? How to do it so that he confidently in relationship with God? So that's been renewed, so they could be restored, so they could be given a new life, so they could be brought into God's family. How do I do that? I do that by taking their punishment upon myself, by taking the Father's wrath upon myself. What happened on the cross? Jesus says, because I love them, my friends, because of me, me, God, them will do the grace is necessary for God to love us but the point is love God's general disposition is love towards us he wants to love us he wants to save us he wants to bless us and so in Jesus we see a supreme expression of that now keep that in mind and then Jesus says, you love one another just as I have loved you. What does that mean? That means we love each other by grace. We love each other sacrificially. We stay committed to loving each other even if there is sin involved. We continue to love others even if we are sacrificing ourselves for their sake. That's what Jesus means. What are we motivated by as we love others? This great example of love in Jesus. As he loves us and his love transforms us, now our love is transformed towards others. Now Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. If you're a careful reader of scripture, that is your first question. Why is this a new commandment? In the Old Testament, there are many passages that talk about loving your neighbor, talk about loving others as God commands us to do. Why is this a new commandment? Well, it's not new in content, because we see it throughout Scripture. It's not a new idea. But it is a new standard, and it's a new motivation. The new standard is love others to the extent that Jesus has loved us. The motivation is love others because Jesus loves us. Now, please notice the context of this new commandment. This passage comes right after Judas leaves to betray Jesus and right before Jesus talks to Peter about denying him. Judas and Peter tried loving others 
in the old way and failed. Now, they both knew about the old commandment to love each other, to love your neighbor. Jesus is introducing a new way with a new motivation so that it doesn't happen the way it happened with Judas and the way it happened with Peter. Now, think about Judas. He not only betrayed Jesus, he betrayed his community. He betrayed his brothers. One of his motivations clearly was greed. We know that he was responsible for collecting the donations given to Jesus and his followers, and he stole from those funds. We know that he was paid for his betrayal, though he regretted it later, but he was paid. It was part of his motivation. And so his greed was stronger than his love for Jesus and his brothers. Greed, in the end, won out. Now Peter has a totally different issue. Peter is fearful. He is scared. Remember how he denied Jesus. He was a a teenage girl in, in the darkness around the fire saying, aren't you one of those followers of Jesus? And he says, no. Scared. Fearful. And so fear won out in his life. His love for Jesus was there. He's the only one following Jesus, by the way, at that point. But his fear was too strong, and so it crushed his love. Now, how does what I know about Jesus help me have a different kind of love, a new kind of love for my brothers and my sisters? That new motivation has to be anchored in Christ's own sacrifice. And it is powerful enough to help me and to help you overcome such things as greed and fear. Jesus gave up everything, heaven itself, so he can love me. Well, that helps me. That helps me be generous in my loving of others. Jesus confronted not only the Jewish leaders, not only the Roman authorities, not only Satan, but God's wrath, by far the scariest thing in existence. Jesus confronted that on our behalf so he could love us, so he could love me. Well, that helps me. That helps me love others courageously. That helps me with fear. That helps me with pleasing others and not pleasing God. That is the motivation. It is so crucial for us to understand that Jesus gives us a new commandment with its new standard and new motivation. Friends, let's not love in the old way. Let's not pursue the old commandment that's gone. We have a new commandment from Jesus. The content is the same, but the standard is different. The motivation is different. And Jesus is telling us, don't go back to loving each other the way you used to. Now that you know the way Christ loves you, love others in that way. There are way too many churches that base their fellowship on the old way of loving. Now think about our church. You can can easily think of us as we are a social gathering of people bound by our common love of potlucks and 90s contemporary Christian music. That's, That's the old way. That's the old way. 
you find similarities and you say, let's all get together, right? But Jesus says, there's a new commandment. Love each other the way I have loved you, which means we will disagree on all sorts of issues, but we will be united under Christ. This is a new way of doing community. It is not the same way the world does community. The world needs to find a common ground. The world needs to find a low-conflict environment, low-stress environment. That's how communities are built. Now, we are saying we're okay with high-stress environment because that is where love grows and flourishes. That is where we can practice how Jesus, loving others the way Jesus loves us. That is where we do it. We don't need to avoid tension. We can work through it. We have the resources that nobody else in the world has but us to do it well. Let's not love each other in the old way. To go back to finding common ground, to go back to finding duty-bound relationships would be going back to the old technology and not making use of what we have now. So, for example, if Jillian, my best female friend, tells me, Sergey, can you call Jim and let him know that we would like to have their family over for dinner? And I would respond, and i say, Sure, I'm going to need two tin cans and a lot of string. Right? Because that's how I'm going to communicate with Jim. Just going to put it together, because that's how we used to do it a hundred years ago. And Jillian would say, dummy, use the phone, right? Use what you can. Use the new technology that makes communication easier. Well, it's the same way for us when you come to church and we say, I'm going to use the old way. I'm going to use the old technology to love each other. I'm just going to stoically persevere through conflict. That's the old way. Use grace to resolve it, right? I'm going to find common ground. I'm going to find people like me, and we're going to form a church, and we're going to be all together, and there's going to be no conflict because we're all exactly the same. That's the old way. Coincidentally, that is also the new Christian way that the marketing people tell us we need to use. But that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus says, gather everybody, gather all these people. They're all different. And that's okay because the Trinity is diversity and unity. Because the church is supposed to give us opportunities to love others, not like me, and grow through it and use the resources that God has given us. So before we move on to the last point, here's another broad application question for us to consider. Are you loving others in a new Christ-like, sacrificial, and gracious way? Are you loving others in a new, Christ-like, sacrificial, and gracious way? And finally, our last point, this new kind of love, this new commandment to love each other, marks us as a missional community. So this tree has roots that go into the Trinity. It has a cross-shaped trunk. And it has the branches that are spread out to share its fruit with others. Verse 35. 
By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By what will all the people know? By the way we love one another in the church. This new kind of love marks us as followers of Christ. Now that makes sense, right? The people who follow Jesus must reflect who he is in their relationships with other people who follow Jesus. If you have two people who are followers of Christ, they both subscribe to the same way of life, of course the way they interact with each other will reflect the way Jesus is and what he has commanded us to do. And so if Jesus has reconciled us to God and is reconciling us to each other, obviously our community must be marked by unity and pursuit of reconciliation, which means that when we have a conflict in the church, we don't leave it, we work through it. And the elder's commitment is to work through those difficult things, and it is difficult, and often you don't know how to do that. And often you see your own sin revealed in this as well as you see the sin of the other person. And it's messy. But if Jesus is who he says he is and based on what he has done for us, if he is a reconciler, then we are reconcilers as well. If Jesus loves us, our community must be marked by love. Jesus humbled himself so our community is marked by humility. Jesus is true, so our community is marked by truthfulness. Now there's tremendous missional power in our own church right here. As we live out the gospel among ourselves, I'm talking about us right here, as we live out these things in our relationships, we portray the gospel to our neighborhood and to our community. We tell them, this is what it looks like. We will tell you what it means, but we'll also show you what it looks like. Leslie Newbegin, he's a missiologist, um, spent a lot of time in India as a missionary, and then came to England in the 70s and realized that just as much missional thinking was needed in his own country. And this is his famous quote. He says, the community is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Community is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Hermeneutic means an explanation, an interpretation, an exposition of the gospel. So as people look at the community of Christians, they can deduce in some way, they can construct what the gospel is. As they see how we treat each other, how we love each other, how we forgive each other, how we resolve conflict, as they look at that, they should say, this is the kind of gospel they believe in. Now, when you have people over at your house, and I hope that you do, I hope that you have lots of unbelievers over at your house, that you invite your neighbors, that you invite other parents from your kids' school, that you meet people and invite them over to share the gospel with them. But as you speak, as I speak to unbelievers, we have to be mindful as to what we also portray as we talk. Because at the same time, they are having dinner with us. They are observing how I treat my wife, how I treat my children. Am I patient? Am I gracious? Am I tender? 
Am I truthful? Am I worried about the perception? All those things matter. And as much as it matters to speak the gospel, and please, we can never, never get away from speaking the gospel. We have to verbalize the gospel. But we also need to portray it. And much of that portrayal happens in relationships among Christians. The world looks at us, and if they see Christians who can't get along, Christians who are hateful to each other, Christians who are divisive, if they see that, what will they think our message is? How much credibility will we have when we talk about Jesus who came to reconcile us to God and us to each other? So here's our final broad application question. How does my love for others in the church, what does my love for others in the church tell my neighbors about Jesus? What does my love for others in the church tell my neighbors about Jesus? Now this is the vision We start with this text because this is foundational for the whole understanding of Christian community. Loving each other is foundational. This is basic. This is the vision for a healthy Christian church. It's perfectly balanced. The Trinitarian roots, the cross-shaped trunk, and the branches that reach out to share its fruit with others. D.A. Carson ties it all together. Their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as the children of God, reflecting the mutual love of the Father and the Son and imitating the love that has been shown to them. Their love for the world is the love of compassion, forbearance, evangelism, empathy. Since all true Christians recognize they can never be more than mere beggars telling others where there is bread. How do we relate to the world? Not by looking down on them, but by saying we have experienced something we want to share. Out of the richness of our own faith, out of the richness of our own experience of Christ, and yes, out of the richness of our own community and our own relationships, We share the gospel with others. Does this describe this kind of ideal? Does it describe our community here at Chatham? How can you, how can I make it better? What is God saying to you this morning? Do you need to forgive someone? Or ask someone for forgiveness? Do you need to put aside a personal preference and get on board with what the whole church is doing? Do you need to get off the fence and commit to be a real part of this body? If you are a member but you're not very active in the church, that's a call to you. If you're not a member and you've been attending for a long time, this is a call for you to consider becoming a member, more involved in the life of the church. Do you need to humbly submit to the leadership of the church? Do we as church leaders, elders, deacons, coordinators, need to humbly acknowledge our mistakes 
and seek the Spirit's guidance and power so we can lead and love better. Now my encouragement to all of us this morning is to seek to fulfill the Lord's new commandment to love one another. Friends, the stakes are too high for us not to resolve to do that. This is about God's nature as the Trinity. This is about God's salvation through Christ. This is about God's mission to bring His people to Himself. I'll finish with this quote from Robert Barron, a Catholic theologian. He says, very insightful quote, Unlike the other virtues, both natural and theological, love has no limit. Love has no limit. Justice, limitlessly expressed, excludes all mercy. Too much temperance becomes a fussy puritanism. Exaggerated courage is rashness. Unlimited faith is credulity. Infinite hope devolves into presumption. You see what he's saying? If too much of a particular virtue leads to error, leads to sin. But there can never be too much love. There is never a time when love is inappropriate. For love is what God is, and love constitutes the very life of heaven. Mind you, in heaven there is no need for faith, and hope fades away. But in that supremely holy place, love remains in all of its infinite intensity and radicality. There can never be too much love. So as you consider that and you're saying, should I love these people more? The answer is always going to be yes. Always. It's a rhetorical question. We are always to pursue more love for others. We're always to pursue a more radical and more intense way of loving our brothers and sisters. So do that. Love intensely and radically. Love as Christ loves us. Now we express that love at the Lord's table. Here we see the new kind of love. We see His body broken. We see His blood spilled for us. This is a new covenant bringing a new commandment with it. Notice that as we come to the table, we are reminded through a picture, through an illustration, through our senses, that Jesus came when we were still sinners and He died for us and He loved us unto death, that there was no limit to His love of us. And as we meditate on that, please remember that we're not doing that individually. We are gathered together as a church, coming to the table together. And yes, though every one of us has a cup and has a piece of bread, but we're walking towards it together. We are connected with each other in this service. We're doing that as one community. As much as individually we want to consider our own hearts, we also want to consider ourselves as a community. So be open to the Holy Spirit's conviction, to the Holy Spirit's encouragement as you consider your role in this community. Be open before Him so He can teach us to love each other better. As you come forward, you may take it up front here or take it back to your seats. If you need more time to pray, to meditate as we sing. If you are unable to come forward, we'd like to bring communion to you. So if you're a new person and you need assistance, please just raise your hand. One of our elders will find you. 
will make sure that you will have communion with us today. If you are in the balconies, I'm looking at a bunch of people in that balcony today and some over there. Please come forward. There are tables set up for you there. You can take communion there if you're ready. If you're a believer, you take communion there on your own time. You don't have to come down here. And as you do that, please remember, this is for the Christians. This is for people who have been transformed by God's grace. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, don't buckle under pressure and come and take communion with everybody. No. Come to Jesus. Come to Him who's been pursuing you and loving you and is ready to bless you, is ready to accept you into His family and to give you His rich inheritance. So come to Him. I pray that you would if you're not a believer this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for who you are. Your beauty, your glory, your unity, your love. This diverse community that is also a unity within the Trinity. It's an amazing thing for us to consider. We don't understand it. And yet this is how you have revealed yourself. This is how you have described yourself in Scripture. So we accept it by faith. And we pray that this will not just be a point in our doctrinal statement. But this will also be a point of application. You will teach us how to live together in unity, in joy, in love, the way you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live together. We pray, Father, that you would help us remember now the kind of love, the kind of new love that Jesus has expressed towards us. His body broken as this bread is. His blood spilled as... These, these cups are here. We remember that He did what needed to be done in order for Him to keep loving us. I pray that this new covenant truth would permeate our minds, that our hearts would just be soaked in the gospel this morning, and that we would be motivated to love each other and to love others on the outside. This is not just for us. This is something to be shared with others. And to that goal, I pray for the Holy Spirit to to come and influence us and open our lives and open our hearts to others so that our church could be a church that welcomes others, that as we love each other, we're excited to spread love in our neighborhood and our community. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict today and encourage and correct us and support us as we resolve to love each other. I pray that we would do that in His power in a new way commanded by Jesus. Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's do it together.